0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star than zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care.
1: Please go ahead. Well, thank you very much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Current Perspectives on the Treatment of, of Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia. And today's program is a collaborative effort, a partnership between the CL Society and Cancer Care. And we're delighted with that partnership. And today's program is supported by Pharmacyclics, LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, before we actually um, introduce our first speaker, um, we are going to ask you just a few questions up front to see um, what you know about um, CLL coming into the program. So um, I really appreciate you all participating in these questions. It helps us in planning future programs um, to be sure that they're, that we've, um, that, that you're, that we can do a better job planning them with your information up front. So I'm going to start with our first question, and there's just five questions. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the significant role of testing in informing treatment choices for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand first-line treatment for CLL. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the importance of retesting and determining treatment for second- and third-line treatments. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. The next question is, I know current perspectives on new and emerging treatments of CLL. Again, one the highest rating and five the lowest rating. final question is, I understand the significance of clinical trials for CLL. One is the highest rating and five, the lowest rating. I very much want to thank all of you for participating in these questions. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jennifer Brown, and Dr. Brown is Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, Director of CLL Center, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And Dr. Brown will be addressing the review of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, in the context of COVID-19, significant role of testing and informing your treatment choices, and first-line treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Brown.
2: Thank you very much. And welcome everyone. I'm very glad to be here today to talk to you about CLL. Now, as I think probably most people on the call know, CLL stands for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And most people diagnosed with this actually these days show up at their primary care doctor or another doctor's office, and they're found to have a white blood cell count that is higher than normal. Uh, generally, they may have no symptoms at all of this. What is noted is that the particular type of cell called the lymphocyte cell, which is a type of immune cell, is increased in the blood. And that is also the type of cell that can be related to CLL. We have to send a blood test to confirm that. And generally, this blood test is all that's needed to diagnose CLL. So it's really quite simple. Not everyone presents this way, though. Some people will have lymph nodes. Now, lymph nodes are... Uh, can be felt usually in the neck or armpit or sometimes in the groin. They may be pea-sized or grape-sized little lumps and uh, generally are movable. And those are often a reason to be evaluated by your doctor. And then depending on the size of them, they may require further evaluation or biopsy. And that is also a way that people present with CLL. Now, historically, people who came in with the lymph node type used to be called something else, used to be called SLL, or small lymphocytic lymphoma. Lymphoma because the cells are in the lymph node rather than the blood, which is what when the cells are in the blood, we call that leukemia. But now we know that the cells are really the same, regardless of whether they're in the blood or lymph node, and the disease behaves the same over time. So we've combined all of this into one disease, which is CLL-SLL, and we usually just call it CLL for short. And then it's also possible that people may have symptoms when they come in. And the symptoms that worry us the most are things like weight loss, fatigue, fevers, or low blood counts. But the majority of people will not really have symptoms and will be found just on these evaluations at their doctor. And the diagnosis of CLL does not mean that you need to be treated right away. In fact, the majority of people do not need treatment. And this is based on older studies where people were randomly assigned to get treated right away or wait until they met our criteria for treatment, which I'll tell you a little bit more about in a minute. And it was found that regardless of when people were treated, everyone lived the same length of time, except that there were more side effects than the people treated. And so that really established that we don't treat people until treatment is really needed. And so the reasons why treatment are needed typically include that the normal blood cells, like the red blood cells that carry the oxygen, will go down, or the platelets that clot the blood will go down. And that's because the CLL cells are accumulating in the bone marrow. Typically, as the white count goes up, this may start to happen over time. And that's often a reason why people need treatment. Sometimes big lymph nodes are a reason for treatment. Sometimes symptoms, because as the white count goes up, the counts drop, lymph nodes can develop Sometimes people get more symptoms of things like fatigue. Sometimes there could be discomfort if the spleen is a little bit enlarged. The spleen is a large lymph node in the abdomen on the left upper side. And so sometimes if that gets big, it can be hard to eat and people can lose weight. And that can be a reason for treatment. In short, reasons where the disease is starting to cause problems for the person in terms of blood counts or symptoms or discomfort. But it can be many years till that happens. And in fact, some people diagnosed with CLL, SLL, may never need treatment, actually. And so we call that the watch and wait phase, although it's often been dubbed the watch and worry phase, because that is naturally what happens when you've been given this diagnosis and you're not necessarily doing something about it. But there are a couple things that you can do while you're in this phase that are really important, actually, related to other issues that the CLL can cause. And so one of those is to make sure that you do everything you can to prevent infection by getting your vaccines that are recommended. And so vaccines that we typically recommend are a yearly flu vaccine. And there are two vaccines against bacteria that cause pneumonia called Prevnar and Pneumovax. And we recommend both of those. And then I usually repeat the Pneumovax every five years for my CLL patients. And then there's the shingles vaccine for anyone over 50, but there's a particularly increased risk of shingles in people with CLL, and so getting the shingles vaccine is also highly recommended. Then, I'm sure, as most of you know, obviously the question of COVID vaccination has come up recently, and I think most of us, the general consensus is that we do recommend COVID vaccines for our CLL patients, regardless of whether they're on treatment or not, but with the recognition that, similar to the other vaccines that we give, it's possible that the likelihood of response for our CLL patients to that vaccine is lower. So we generally counsel that you continue to be very careful to avoid any COVID exposures. Unfortunately, everyone naturally then asks, well, can we test and see if I've responded to the vaccine? And so the answer to that so far is not really. There are some tests out there to measure an antibody response, but we don't know how that correlates with protection. And so Dr. Shadman is going to tell you more about some studies that we're doing to really better understand that. But at the moment, we do recommend that you get the vaccine, but that you still be pretty careful. And so all of these vaccines are part of what you can do to make sure you stay healthy in the setting of CLL, because we do know that CLL is associated with increased infections. And then the other thing that's very important to do is to do all your recommended screening for other cancers. Because unfortunately, there's also an increased risk of getting other cancers in the setting of CLL. And these are just the other cancers that are common in the population, things like breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer. And so I just always ask my patients, Are they have to date with their colonoscopies? Have they gotten their mammograms? Another one that I actually usually tell people to make sure they do is to get pap smears because the virus that causes cervical cancer, the HPV virus, can actually reactivate in people with CLL, even if it's been many, many years since the infection. And, and so that's another aspect of what you can do to proactively manage your care uh, while you're in this phase. Then another aspect of CLL specifically and how we think about it has to do with the testing and the importance of this for understanding the disease. And there are three main tests that are really important after the test that establish the diagnosis of CLL. And so the first one is called FISH, F-I-S-H. And that's basically a way to look for specific chromosome losses or gains that are in the CLL cells themselves. And we've been doing this for many years, ever since the study showed clearly that certain of these changes in the chromosomes were associated with the behavior of the CLL. In particular, we worry about the loss of the short arm of chromosome 17, so-called 17P deletion, which is associated with more aggressive disease. The second test that's also very important, which tends to be not as widespread, is to do a mutation test looking at a gene called P53. And that's the same gene that's on that chromosome 17, a gene that can cause trouble, that causes CLL, that can behave more aggressively. And so we like to know about those because we tend to follow people more closely, although it's not a reason to treat early. However, there are some clinical trials ongoing that Dr. Shatnell will talk to you about for patients who do have higher risk CLL in this watch and wait phase before treatment is needed. But knowing this information helps us sort of manage the disease, know when we should follow you, and, and just better understand your situation. The other important test is called the IGHB test, which also has a long spelled out name. But sort of simply stated, the IGHB test, it looks at the antibody gene in the CLL. And the CLL cells, they all have one antibody gene because they came from a cell that makes antibodies. And so that antibody gene basically can look very much like what you were born with or been changed a lot. And so we like to look and see what that looks like because it's been shown that, based on how changed it is from the way it was when you were born, predicts how the disease behaves. It divides people with CLL roughly in two groups between a group that has much more indolent disease, may have a much longer period of watch and wait before needing treatment, or is more likely to be the group that will never need treatment, versus a group where the disease tends to proceed more steadily toward treatment. We can still manage both of these, all of these, very, very effectively in the era of our new treatments but it just helps us to better understand what's going on with your disease, especially during watch and wait or between disease treatments, as well as it also influences treatment choice to some extent. So that brings me to first-line treatment options. And so historically, this involved primarily chemoimmunotherapy. But the role of chemoimmunotherapy, which is sort of non-specific treatment that just targets cells that are dividing a lot, it's been markedly diminished with our new targeted therapies that are based on the biology of the disease. And most of us in academic practice in CLL are using less and less chemoimmunotherapy, except there are, there are subsets of patients generally with very low-risk disease who can have very, very long remissions after a chemoimmunotherapy regimen. And that's generally the one place where we may still consider it. And, but in those cases, often we actually also have combinations with targeted agents. So I'm not really going to say more about that, except to say that the role has been markedly diminished. We have two main categories of targeted agents that we're now using, both frontline and relapsed. One is called the BTK inhibitors. That stands for Bruton Tyrosine Kinase. And that's a major driver of why the CLL cells grow and divide too much and then cause problems. And the first BTK inhibitor that was approved is called Ibrutinib, and we now have a second one called Acalabrutinib. So the BTK inhibitors are very interesting. They're pills. You just take them every day at home. And what they do, actually, is initially the white count will go up, and that's because they pull cells out of the bone marrow and out of the lymph nodes into the blood, where then the cells die because they're not getting the support that they need from the lymph node and the bone marrow. And so the white count may go up initially and stay up for a little while, and then it comes down slowly over time, and it may come back to normal. It may still stay a little bit above normal. But it doesn't usually go completely away, the CLL cells, with a, with a Brutinib or a BTK inhibitor. But that doesn't matter because as long as you stay on the drug, we know that it can still control the disease for very, very long times. Now, the trouble with a Brutinib is that it does have some side effects that cause people the need to stop it. And sometimes these are heart rhythm problems or other heart problems or bleeding problems. People who are on blood thinners, we need to be careful when we use Ibrutinib. And it can also cause niggly side effects like joint pains that can be quite bad, fatigue, rash. The second-generation inhibitor, acalabrutinib, improves on many of these side effects. And so personally, in my practice, I now use much more acalabrutinib than Ibrutinib. Then the other targeted drug is called venetoclax. And that inhibits something called BCL-2. And this works differently. This kills the cells very directly, and they just die immediately. And so the main side effect of this, actually, is that the cells can die too quickly, something called tumor lysis syndrome. And that's why when you go on venetoclax, you need to come into the hospital for monitoring of your labs weekly for five weeks while the dose is slowly being increased. But generally, if you do that, we can readily manage this. And then once you're on the drug, it's usually pretty well tolerated, it's usually given together with an antibody. And antibodies, these antibodies are engineered in the lab to specifically target the CLL cells. There's one called obinutuzumab and the original one was called rituximab. And so those are infusions. You have to go into clinic to get them on a set schedule that's usually well established. And so frontline is usually for one year and with obinutuzumab and then you stop. And usually you're in a deep remission when you stop, and then will remain in remission for some length of time. The length of the remission depends on how deep the remission is, which is completely different from the BTK inhibitors. So they really operate in sort of two different paradigms. But they're both highly effective. And, you know, when it's time for first-line therapy, your doctor will talk to you about sort of the pluses and minuses of these different options in relation to your own tests. And it's always important to consider clinical trials as well, because you know we still have a lot to learn in CLL, and we're still continuing to improve our therapies. Even though we have great therapies, we're improving them further by combining them and doing additional studies like this. And I think I've gone a little over, so I better stop.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Brown. That was really wonderful, and you really set the stage for today's program and just covered a lot of areas, so I know there will be questions for you uh, during the Q&A. And I actually do want to um, let you all know that there's – just to let you know about who's on the program today in terms of listeners. We have over 253 listeners on the call today. You have come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, and we also have international participants from Canada, Germany, Israel, Oman, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Serbia, and the United Kingdom, so it's a bit of a global call as well. So we are delighted to have all of you and to welcome all of you on the call. So thank you all for being here. And now our next speaker, uh, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Um, Maziar Shadman. And Dr. Shadman is Associate Professor, Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Associate Professor, Medical Oncology Division, University of Washington, Attending Physician, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Shadman will be addressing relapsed refractory disease, retesting importance in determining treatment for second- and third-line treatments, current perspectives on new and emerging treatments for CLL, updates on clinical trials and their significance for CLL, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and making your list of questions. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shadman.
3: Hello, everyone. It's my pleasure to be part of this program, and uh, I only have uh, uh, around 15 minutes, and I will be covering a number of topics. So, to, to cover the first uh, uh, section, which is uh, treatment options for patients with relapsed or refractory disease, uh, I would like to just remind uh, all of us about a few principles that we need to follow. Number one, uh, as Dr. Brown mentioned, when we think about starting treatment in the first-line setting, the CLL or SLL, these are not conditions that we, we have to treat necessarily all the time. I mean, patients uh, will be followed, and there is a, a, a criteria that we follow. And basically, I would say clinical reasons to to discuss treatment options. So uh, if if I have a patient who has had chemotherapy or even targeted therapy in the past and they're currently not on treatment, uh, I would follow them clinically and um, then at some point we'll decide after discussing with the patient that, okay, it's time now to again discuss treatment options. So number one, there is a need for having a reason to start treatment and uh, again we go through the same criteria, is there a a reason to believe that the bone marrow or the blood counts are not adequate because of CLL? Or are we dealing with a situation where lymph nodes or size of different organs are large and are causing symptoms because of CLL? Or some patients may have more general symptoms like fatigue and weight loss and things like that. So, once once we decide that it is time to consider treatments then the most important factor in making a decision about the type of treatment is number 1 having a repeat uh, test looking at the molecular profile of of CLL to make sure that the the mutations and some of the chromosome changes are are the same so because if they're different and uh, if if patients cancer cells have developed a new change, and now they're, they're showing some abnormal or high-risk features, that will change the way we look at the treatment options and the way we monitor the patient. So it's key to remember that before any line of therapy, we need to look at that, those molecular informations. We do not need to repeat the IGHV mutation, as it was mentioned by Dr. Brown. That's something that does not change over time, but the rest of the tests needs to be repeated. Number two, the second most important factor uh, is what what we use for the first-line treatment or what kind of treatment our patients had in, in, in the past. Uh, these days, it, it would be very unusual to, to use chemoimmunotherapy uh, beyond the first-line, and most of the time you're using one of our targeted uh, agents. Uh, here, we have the st- same two classes that uh, we use for the first line, uh, namely BTK inhibitors. Ibrutinib and acalabrutinib, are the approved drugs for CLL at this time, and we, of course, have Venetoclax. Venetoclax uh, is given for two years in the relapse setting in combination with Another monoclonal antibody very similar to obinutuzumab, in terms of the way it works, it's called rituximab, and that would be the standard, Uh, but of course, venetoclax in combination with the CD20 antibody. Uh, But the the duration of treatment and what's studied and what's uh, uh, considered the standard is is two years, Uh, and remember, it was one year in the frontline setting. Here we have a third uh, class, Um, these are called PI3 kinase inhibitors. They basically, uh, if you think about BTK inhibitors targeting the enzyme BTK, here we have these drugs that go for PI3 kinase, which is another enzyme that kind of uh, helps the CLL cells survive and we're, we're targeting those enzymes to stop their... They're basically uh, the growth and uh, another effective uh, group of drugs. We usually don't use them in the first line setting, but in the relapsed uh, and the second or third line, uh, we do have two drugs, idelalisib, usually given in combination with Drituximab, and also Duvelisib is another drug from this family. Now. It's really beyond this uh, short uh, presentation, but we, we do consider many factors in deciding which which class should be used. Uh, probably the most important one is that venetoclax-based therapy is a time-limited therapy, as I said. Uh, it's designed to be given for two years uh, and then stop. And uh, other treatments are indefinite, so you do continue ibrutinib or acalabrutinib or duvelisib or idyllicib. So that's one important consideration. The other factor is, uh, of course, patients may have other medical conditions, and we look at the side effect profile of these drugs, and we match it with the medical comorbidities that our patients have, and we decide that which which drug would be the best option. Now, in somebody who has all the options and they don't have medical problems, uh, the top two classes are usually either a BTK inhibitor or venetoclax. So, if uh, if if we uh, use the BTK inhibitor option in the frontline setting, then um, the question is why that treatment was stopped. Did we stop it because uh, the drug uh, was not effective. In that case, we kind of need to move to, to venetoclax-based therapy. But sometimes some of our patients stop, for example, ibrutinib because they did not tolerate it and they had side effects from them. And uh, the practice is to stop the treatment, and if they don't need to go on a uh, subsequent therapy, we just monitor those patients and let's say a year or so later, they they have a reason to be treated again. So in this case, the class of BTK inhibitor is still a viable option. And now with second-generation drug like acalabrutinib, maybe we can even consider that drug if if the only reason why ibrutinib was stopped was side effect, but of course, even venetoclax in combination with, with rituximab would, would be a very reasonable option. So th- that's why there are many factors and many variables that we need to consider. Um, And again, um, in in a patient who had venetoclax-based therapy as a first-line treatment, this becomes a little bit more complicated. Uh, Of course, if venetoclax stops working while the patient was taking it, then we need to move to another class. But remember, venetoclax is a fixed duration therapy for first line. So what if a patient took it for one year and now two years later they need treatment again? Do we go back to venetoclax? Do we start a new class? These are very good questions that we we do make educated guess, and depending on the duration of remission from the drug and, and some other factors, we may decide to uh, offers a venetoclax therapy or or other classes, and there are uh, studies that are uh, trying to answer this question uh, specifically retreatment with venetoclax. But definitely reasonable to reconsider venetoclax, but BTK inhibitors are also uh, reasonable uh, uh, treatment options. Uh, moving on to what's going on in the field and what what are the clinical trials that are either ongoing or some of them that are partly presented. As you know, when we have our uh, national meetings, uh, we we get updates from the ongoing clinical trials. In the interest of time, I would like to really put them in a few categories to kind of give an idea to to the audience of what what is going on. There are many other drugs and many other trials at different stages, but really covering a few maybe more uh, mature uh, strategies uh, are the following. Number one, we did talk in the first-line setting that we do not start treatment right at the time of diagnosis. because what we have tested so far, which has been mainly chemotherapy drugs, they did not help our patients live longer. So we have stopped that, or we never actually started that practice. Now, a very good question and a very reasonable question that I get in in the clinic all the time is that, what about the new drugs? What if you start a new drug right at the time of diagnosis? Does it help? Does it help me live longer? Which is the most important endpoint that we're looking for when you when we are offering treatment to someone who's totally asymptomatic, which is most of the time the case at the time of diagnosis, so there is a U.S. national uh, multi-center study that is uh, now open to many sites in the country, and if you are a patient who are within one year of diagnosis and you do have high-risk features in your CLL and this means that you need to be tested for the molecular markers at the time of diagnosis so you're a physician and you know if you're considered high risk or not. Then you may be eligible for this clinical trial that uh, randomizes or give, gives um, half of the patient, or actually it's more than half, it's the 2-to-1 randomization. So some patients will start treatment Early at the time of diagnosis, and some others will follow the standard practice. And the idea is to learn at some point in the next few years if this strategy is uh, uh, something that we need to bring to the standard of care. So this study is studies now open, and we, it will take a few years for us to get the answer, but this is something to to think about if you are within one year of diagnosis and if you know that you're high-risk and you have some high-risk features. The second uh, Type of clinical trials that we are uh, learning more and more with each uh, major meeting is uh, combining these novel drugs together, and if you think about the goal in, in for CLL investigators and physicians and of course patients is to, we know that CLL is not a curable disease at this point, but really the goal is to do our best, use our best drugs and find the optimal time of treatment, and hopefully at some point we'll get to the point that we can offer a time-limited and chemotherapy-free treatment to our patients and then a stop treatment, and hopefully they will achieve a long remission, and that long remission at some point can be called cure. That's the hope and that's the goal. We we have a lot of work to do, but the, that's the rationale for number of clinical trials that are trying to combine these novel drugs together, and and that's one common feature that we use these classes, uh, like venetoclax, in addition to a BTK inhibitor or a PI3 kinase inhibitor. And then we also look at the depth of response. So the, you probably know about the MRD or measurable residual disease. That's, that's the detectable disease at a level that we would not be able to pick up using our conventional methods, but if you use uh, other uh, technologies that can pick up one cancer cell out of 100,000 or a million, then we have a good understanding of how deep the remission is and how good this combination works. So what these trials are trying to do is trying to find out the optimal duration of treatment and optimal combination that does not give, give the patient the side effects, but also provides a fixed-duration therapy with with a long remission after that. So there are many studies that are ongoing, and uh, we're just uh, uh, waiting to see if this this becomes a standard of care at some point. Some studies are uh, more uh, advanced in terms of the implementation and are actively enrolling and are close to be done with the enrollment. Some other ones are at the early stage. You can imagine there are a number of combinations that you can use with all the drugs that we have. So that's that's kind of the second category of clinical trials that we are watching very closely in this uh, in the CLO field, or we're involved in them. Of course, uh, with all the drugs that we mentioned, both for first line and second line, we're trying to make those drugs better. So you already heard about the example of ibrutinib and acalabrutinib, and the fact that acalabrutinib has fewer side effects. Uh, this this um, strategy is continuing. We are now having other drugs from the same family of btk inhibitors that are in clinical trials and some of them are um, again closer to hopefully become as p- part of our standard uh, uh basically uh toolbox for for what we use for cll uh, a, a drug like xenobrutinib is uh, uh, being uh, studied in clinical trials it's uh, approved for other diseases uh, the lymphoma type called mantle cell lymphoma but also Publications in CLL, uh, specifically patients with 17P deletion, and also in patients who did not tolerate a drug like ibrutinib or other BTKIs, we could consider xanobrutinib, and that is now part of our NCCN, which is the standard practice guidelines, too. So that's that's important to to uh have as as a treatment option uh we do have even what we call a third generation b t k inhibitor now in clinical trial the, the, in clinical trials the drug uh, that uh you may be familiar with called loxo three zero five or uh Pirtobrutinib, which is now the new name, and this is also another promising drug um uh, which uh, has uh two maybe uh unique features it's also a very clean and targeted drug that make, uh, that comes with fewer side effects and a better safety profile. It also, although it targets the same enzyme, BTK, it kind of attacks the enzyme in a different way, meaning that... We could potentially use it in patients who uh, have have had disease progression on ibrutinib or a drug like acalabrutinib. And this is not the case with acalabrutinib and ibrutinib. To explain it a little bit, bit more, if, if I am a patient who um, and my disease progressed on ibrutinib, then acalabrutinib would not be a reasonable option for me because they kind of work the same way. But these third-generation drugs, including pirtobrutinib as an example, uh, it, 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 in the clinical trials, we have seen activity even in patients who have had BTK inhibitors and had disease progression. So that's, that's, that's big news for us and, of course, for patients, and we are very excited. The drug is still in, in clinical trials and uh, is being tested in different settings and is not part of our standard of care. And and the last example uh, from this group is a a drug called umbralisib. That's a new PI3 kinase inhibitor that will be added to the group of uh, idelalisib and Duvelisib, and we we uh, heard about this presentation uh, at our national meeting in december and in combination with an antibody the the com- the, the, the regimen seems to be effective and could be another option for our patients either in the relapse setting or maybe even in the first line but We'll need to hear back from, uh, or the company needs to hear back from the FDA, and if this becomes another option for our patients, that would be uh, another good news. So many uh, things are happening in the background, and we are expecting to have more drugs, even more drugs available for our patients in the upcoming months and years. And lastly, just and mainly maybe for our high-risk patients with high-risk features in the relapse setting, there is a totally new way of treating uh, um, cancers in, uh, especially l- types of lymphoid malignancies, and that's CAR T therapy, and CAR stands for Chimeric Antigen Receptor. Basically what it is, the, the technology takes advantage of patients' own T cells, and T cells are uh, very important a part of our immune system, and they do a great job in fighting infections, so the idea is to use their ability and direct it uh, against cancer cells in this case. So the T cells are taken out of the patient's body, and there will be a modification in the lab, and after a few weeks, those are put back to the patient's body through just a simple infusion. And and that the rest would be the fighting that the immune system does against the CLL cells in this case. So this technology is currently approved by FDA for a number of lymphoid malignancies, but not for CLL. But the studies are ongoing, and we are seeing promising results in very high-risk patients. So these are patients who have had Uh, uh, those targeted drugs most of the time and they still need more um, treatments and we're seeing uh, um, that the CAR-T technology is being effective and again CAR-T is just a general term depending on which target on your cancer cells we're going for there could be different type of CAR-T products and and, uh, that's another very active area of research in general in cancer and uh, B-cell malignancies, including CLL, happen to be in the one of the first types of uh, diseases that we are using this technology against. So, very quickly on uh, on COVID vaccine, I think we, we, I'm sure we'll hear more in the question and answer section. But the, a very common question. I think it has two uh, layers to it. Number one can the vaccine be harmful to to a patient? Uh, There's no evidence to suggest that. Number two, will the vaccine be effective for for CLL patients? Because, number one, we know that a CLL patient, even without having treatment, even before having treatment, their immune system may not be as competent as somebody without CLL. And plus, prior treatments for CLL, including chemotherapy or antibodies, or even patients who are currently on active CLL therapy, like any of these targeted drugs, we don't know how those will impact, uh, affect, or what kind of an impact they may have on the way the immune system responds to the vaccine. So we don't know that, uh, but, and and it is possible that it's not as ideal and as, as good as somebody without a CLL history, so we're doing two things. I think the current recommendation is to still get the vaccine for sure if uh it's offered and uh, if it's available. Uh using the principle of it's not there's no indication that it will cause any harm. And number two, it it will provide some protection. We don't know what what that level would be, but we are also actively studying this exact question and many academic centers in the country are involved in in a study that basically look at the immune response to the vaccine in CLL patients specifically. And we're looking at different cohorts of patients, patients who are currently on targeted drugs, the ones that we just mentioned, a cohort of patients who are not on treatment, and patients who had recent treatments, and we look at different things. We look at the SPARC antibody, we look at the T-cell uh, profile of these patients, and we also look at, uh, we rule out the N-binding antibody, which shows the prior exposure to the vaccine. So we're hoping that um, this study is happening and again many colleagues in many centers are actively looking for patients so if you are somebody who has not received the vaccine or just recently had it and just talk to your physicians and you may be able to contribute to the study and uh, this is going to be very meaningful for the field and we're hoping to get that information soon uh i i think i should probably stop here the telemedicine and uh the technology i would just say maybe in 15 seconds um uh, We do take advantage of the technology during the COVID time. Uh, I think it's important to think about the local prevalence of the infection. Uh, And remember that if you do need to see your physician because there is a need for a physical examination, and if you have symptoms that need to be addressed or assessed, don't hesitate. I think telemedicine is important and has been extremely helpful, but it should not replace uh, thorough medical assessment if there is a need for it. So definitely have a conversation with your medical team and let them know if there is something that needs to be assessed. Uh, and, uh, you know, telemedicine is great, but it will not replace the clinical assessment in, in somebody who has active malignancy. So I, I'll stop here and uh, we'll... we'll Probably talk more during the Q and A.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Shadman. Outstanding and just really uh, covered a lot um, in in a brief time. So we really want to thank you for that, and uh, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A um, as well. Um, and our next uh, speaker is. Um, Ms. Patricia Kaufman, and Ms. Kaufman is co-founder and communications director CL CLL Society Inc., and she will be addressing the CLL Society's free programs and services, and, um, and I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Kaufman, who has actually partnered with us on today's program. So, Ms. Kaufman.
0: Thanks so much, Carolyn. I'm delighted to be here with Doctors Brown and Shadman today. I, um, I want to remind everyone that the CLL Society is here to help with our patient friendly, physician curated website, webinars, educational forums, video interviews, articles, programs, and services. So whether you are newly diagnosed or you've been a patient, a CLL patient, for a very long time, our learning tools will meet you at any stage of your CLL journey. And we provide these services in order to help you to learn to advocate for the best possible care for your CLL, because we believe that smart patients get smart care. From the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic, the CLL Society has realized the seriousness of this threat to our vulnerable immune-suppressed CLL patients. You'll find a special section on our website devoted to COVID news, our latest official statements reflecting on that news, as well as recordings from our multiple COVID-19 virtual community meetings. And apropos to Dr. Brown's emphasis on the importance of predictive testing before treatment, CLL Society has, for many years, run the Test Before Treat educational campaign. We offer a handy Test Before Treat one-pager, highlighting the three most important predictive tests, FISH, test for mutation of the T53 gene IGHV test. And the results of these tests give us information about the biology of our disease, which in turn gives us the ability to make a reasonable prediction as to which therapies might offer us the best chance of success. So we recommend that you download our Test Before Treat one-pager and use it as a conversation starter with your physician. The CLL Society also covers all of the major hematology conferences, interviewing the leading CLL researchers to help keep you updated on the latest clinical trials and delivering up-to-date information concerning credible, cutting-edge treatment options and explaining what this research means to CLL patients. Since CLL's brings its own vocabulary, we demystify CLL terminology in our glossary of terms, and we cut the confusion in our sections on acronyms and abbreviations so that you can better understand the language of CLL. No need to be frustrated or in the dark. Just look it up on our site. And have you received your lab tests from your healthcare provider, but you don't know what they mean? To help you get your bearings, we suggest that you download our chart to enter lab results. Complete it on a regular basis. Compare your results to our chart of normal lab values and begin looking for trends. If you have not yet attended one of our CLL-specific support groups, don't spend another month alone. Let us connect you with other CLL patients and caregivers through one of our CLL-specific support groups, which meet monthly across the United States. And if you do not have access to a CLL expert and are concerned that you may not be receiving the best care for your CLL, please apply to our expert access program for a no-cost second opinion from a CLL expert In order to qualify, you must, one, have a diagnosis of CLL, two, live in the United States, three, not be in the care of a CLL expert, and finally, stay in the know and look forward to Tuesdays. Visit our website and sign up to receive our Tuesday weekly alerts to get the kind of knowledge that strengthens your ability to advocate on your own behalf for the best possible care for your CLL, and stay strong and stay safe.
1: We are all in this together. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Cuffman. Excellent presentation, wonderful resource for everybody on the call today, so thank you for your presentation. And uh, so now I would like to say a few words about Cancer Care Services. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization, um, and uh, we have a... Cancer care free um, HOPE line that people call, 1 800 813 4673. And that's staffed by about 35 oncology social workers, and they're here to answer all of your questions, um, provide support. Um, and um, a lot of things that we do, people will often call want to talk to someone. They also will um, actually have uh, questions and need for practical and financial assistance, as well as copay assistance. Um, We also do offer case management services. That means if we don't have the services you need, we'll refer you and get you to the place you need the help from. We won't just give you a list of places to call, but we actually will provide you with that. We'll actually take you there um, virtually by phone. We'll connect you and be sure that you get your needs met, and if they're not, we'll continue to help you until those needs are met. We also offer online support groups. And those are available to people nationally. And um, we also offer a variety of these type of workshops. We do about 75 of them per year and lots of publications and materials and fact sheets that are available as well. So that gives you a thumbnail sketch of many of the services that Cancer Care offers. Now, before we move on to the q and I do want to actually um, just have another set of questions to ask you um, at the end of the program today. So as we finish before we take questions, um, so we're not ending yet, we're going to have questions to our speakers, but we're going to move on to just another set of questions that we want to ask you. And so the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the significant role of testing in informing treatment choices for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Again, one is the highest rating and five, the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about my knowledge of first-line treatment for CLL. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result, Of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident in my knowledge of the importance of retesting and determining treatment for second and third line treatments. Again, one is the highest rating, five the lowest rating. Just two questions left. Um, Next question is: As a result of what I learned. In this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of current perspectives on new and emerging treatments of CLL. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this is the last and final question. As a result of this workshop... I have greater confidence in participating in clinical trials for CLL. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you very much for participating in these questions. It helps us as we plan future programs for all of you. And now we have time for the questions um, for our speakers, and so I'm going to um, ask Michelle to bring our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And so we're going to begin um, with uh, Michelle explaining to you how to queue up for questions. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press
0: star, then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question hasn't answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by
1: clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question from one of our um, on, from about online participants, and this is a question for Dr. Um, Jones. Um, Dr. Brown, um, when will CRISPR be available to treat Pure Prevent CLL? Right. So, you know, I can't say that
2: there's any specific horizon on that, it's, you know, prevention is definitely a challenging problem since we really don't yet understand the causes of CLL very well. The family history of CLL or other lymphomas is associated with a higher risk of disease, but the vast majority of people with such a family history still won't get CLL. So, you know, trying to identify people for a prevention strategy is a little bit complicated. And then from a treatment perspective, you know, we need to eradicate the cells, and it's really not clear at all how we would apply CRISPR, which is usually to knock out genes, although it can also be to modify them uh, to CLL. You know, I think some of the things we're looking into that are maybe somewhat along that line include the CAR T-type therapies that Dr. Shadman described, where we collect personal T-cells and then do some manipulation on them in the lab so that they'll go back like a magic bullet to target the CLL cells. And even that, we're still working on. We don't have it optimized yet for CLL.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um, And um, a question for Dr. Shadman. with the COVID pandemic, the FDA accelerated authorized use of vaccines. Have lessons learned by the FDA being applied to approval of CL drugs you have discussed? Dr. Shadman.
3: Yeah, I mean, of course, you're talking about two very different settings here, right? So a pandemic with high mortality and morbidity rate and, you know, the need for having having preventive or therapeutic measures is very different than you know, what we have for CLL, I mean, we talk about all all the new drugs and what, what's upcoming and making these drugs better and, you know, kind of really talking or thinking about cure. But, you know, the, the, if anything, I think the, the, the current standard of care is extremely effective and <clears throat> really safe and much safer than what we had even, like, let's say 10 years ago when we only had chemoimmunotherapy. So, in a way, to... In order to let a new drug become part of the standard of care, we need to really show that the drug has the efficacy and safety. So, obviously, there are a subset of patients who need uh, novel drugs, and I think definitely in those settings we should look at it differently, and uh, having having uh, maybe a little bit lower threshold of accepting new drugs is reasonable. but. For majority of patients, I mean, we talk about different options and how to decide between these drugs. That, but what I usually tell my patients when I'm discussing, let's say, BTK inhibitor versus venetoclax-based therapy in the first-line setting, I tell them at the end, whatever you do is going to be very effective and probably very safe. So we are really living in the era of really this revolution in treatment of CLL. So. Yes, for selected patients, I think, you know, there, there needs to be a different way of looking at uh, the regulatory process. But in general, I mean, what we have today has probably made it more difficult for any, any new uh, comer to the field. So that, that's, I think, is a good thing, actually.
1: Thank you. Um, and a question for um but Dr. Brown, um, you recommend pap smears. How frequently and until what age? I'm 70. Do you recommend that I still get um, pap smears?
2: Right. Well, so that's a very individualized question. You know, I think if you never had any abnormal pap smears, you know, during the period when it was tested and you were known to be HPV negative, then you don't need to have them anymore. You can follow the general population Uh, guidelines. It's mostly to identify that possibility of HPV positivity, if that's unknown, that I generally recommend it. And, uh, you know, I have to say this is skewed toward the patient population that I see, which is younger. So it's mostly been people in their 50s or early 60s. So again, if you've never had any evidence of HPV or any abnormal pap smears, then you probably don't need to worry about it.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Um and um so and I think um what Dr. Brown has said this is very important to uh to check with your of course your healthcare team around this as well. Um but thank you. And um another question and this would be for Dr. Shadman, if a patient is on a PPI, is Loxo and ACAGRUTENEB still a viable still viable options?
3: Um uh, so I think that, that for, for acalabrutinib we do um, actually care about the p p i and you know that we do want to make sure that we we um, there there is issues with the absorption and uh, but not for the other b t k inhibitors so uh that seems to be kind of a specific issue with acalabrutinib um uh, and not with the other drugs including perbrutinib which is currently not, as I as mentioned, approved and it's being used in the clinical trial setting.
1: Thank you. And for Dr. Brown, um, so the, this is a question about um, a newly diagnosed um, CL patient who does not wish to get treatment when it's recommended. Um, can you comment on that um, in terms of uh, that decision and the follow-up care Just um, and what might go into that in terms of a decision to not Receive treatment?
2: Well, you know, I think that's very complicated. Um, you know, we do sometimes see that there can be greater enthusiasm for earlier treatment amongst community physicians compared to academic CLL physicians. So I think, you know, before you take a decision to go against the recommendation of your current healthcare provider, you know, you may want to consult with a CLL specialist. Uh, you know, at an academic center to see what their perspective is on it. It it could potentially be dangerous to delay therapy if therapy is, in fact, needed at this time. And as Dr. Shadman highlighted for you, therapy is really very well tolerated and really very highly effective these days. So there's no real reason to fear it at all. You know, it, it could make a huge difference if it's really needed. And so... Yeah, you know, my primary recommendation would be to sort of further eva- If you want to go against your healthcare team's recommendation, is probably to seek a second opinion and sort of further evaluate the situation.
1: Thank you. Very helpful. That's a, a, a um, for our participants. It's very helpful um, response, and I I hope that our participant will will uh, follow up with what you're recommending. I think that's really important. Thank you. Um, and um, And then uh, another question for Dr. Shadman, what are the factors for determining second, third-line treatment?
3: Yeah, so very good question, but also very uh, complicated, right? So as I said, the first question, what they had in prior lines of therapy. So, um, and, and number two, are we looking at a situation where there is a high-risk feature in the in, in the CLL uh, cells or not like uh, high-risk uh, molecular features uh, that we uh, we have to we have to consider. But in general, to make it more practical and maybe simple, if if a patient had venetoclax or I, uh, let's start with ibrutinib or uh, acalabrutinib, if they had one of those two drugs in the past and uh, we can't use any of them, so that means that. The, the, the patients, for example, tried ibrutinib or acalabrutinib and had disease progression, or they have a side effect that is coming back even with the second generation drug like acalabrutinib. Then, of course, if they need treatment in the second line, then the next class to use or the next drug to use is going to be vanitoclax. Uh, and I usually use venetoclax and BTK inhibitors before using PI3 kinase inhibitors. PI3 kinase inhibitors are extremely effective and great drugs, and we do use them, but uh, the safety profile for BTKi and uh, venetoclax is uh, superior. So usually, uh, unless there's a specific reason not to use a BTK inhibitor or venetoclax, and usually I use the PI3 kinase as a third line. the other factor, or if some patient had vanitoquax in the first-line setting, as I mentioned, the question is what what is the timeline uh, after vanitoquax that we're thinking about next line of therapy, right? So if, if someone's disease uh, grows on vanitoquax, of course that drug is out as as an option and we go to the BTK inhibitor class. If their disease comes back four years, let's say, after stopping vanitoquax, I, it is reasonable to go back to venetoclax and try it again, right? So what if it comes back two months after stopping venetoclax? So th- these are type of questions that, again, in the absence of clear evidence and data, we do make clinical judgment decisions, but uh, kind of in principle, if you go with BTKI first, Uh, your is your next uh, drug, and vice versa, and you have the PI3 kinase inhibitors. I think probably the bigger question and more important question is at what point you start thinking about you know, options that include cellular therapy, like, you know, if there's access to a CAR-T clinical trial or, and we didn't talk about stem cell transplant, is being used much less uh, often these days. But I think the bigger question for when we get to the third line is, okay, is this a time to start thinking or uh, thinking about those options or t- or kind of considering some, some preliminary uh, assessments? Uh, but that would be very individualized.
1: Excellent. I want to thank our speakers. You've really been uh, outstanding, and I know we could go on really much longer because there are many questions in queue. And before we do conclude your speaking, um, I'd very much like to hear um, a takeaway from each of you. Um, and so I would like um, to, in the order that you presented, have Dr. Brown go first, Dr. Shadman and Ms. Coffin, just a takeaway from um, f- for today's um, for today's program. Um, So I'm going to start with um, um, uh, Dr. Brown first. You know, I would say that
2: people should be aware that being diagnosed with CLL is really very manageable. It it really is substantially like a, a chronic disease that we can generally manage for very, very long periods. And even if you need treatment, as Dr. Shadman highlighted, the treatments are now really effective, really amazing, and generally with really quite minimal side effects. And so it's really been an amazing time to be a CLL specialist over the last 10 years, being involved with the development of these drugs and seeing what we can now offer our patients. And so I just try to provide a word of comfort to the audience out there that, uh, you know, we can manage CLL. Excellent.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Brown and uh, Dr. Shadman.
3: Yeah, I would just second that. I mean, I think as a field, we are in a pretty good shape in terms of the type of treatments that we have and we can offer to our patients, but we also have a, even a higher goal, and that's to kind of even eradicate this disease, and, you know, we really need the uh, support from our patients, and that would be really considering clinical trials. I mean, it. I understand and we understand that with so many great standards of care options, it may... You may, patients may think twice about con- participation in clinical trials, but uh, I kind of highlighted w- what we're thinking, you know, combining these drugs, coming up with the strategies to hopefully, you know, getting closer to the cure, and it, it really needs participation in clinical trials so we can we can test and approve new generation of these pills or new combinations or even new, basically, technologies for this treatment. So, uh no, this is this is going to be a teamwork.
1: Excellent, thank you so much, and Miss um, Kaufman. I want to uh, also give emphasis to
0: um, our jubilation uh, here in our contact with our patient population that CLL treatments are better than ever. I would want you to please um, stay in touch with the CLL Society because. Thanks to our relationship with doctors such as Dr. Brown and Dr. Shadman, who communicate to the CLL Society and with the CLL Society, allowing us to interview them, being part of our panel discussions. CLL Society stays on the cutting edge of uh, the developments that come out of clinical trials. So treatments are better than
1: ever, and we're reporting on it. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks. Thank you so much. I want to thank actually all of our speakers today, and particularly also our participants, who really ask such great questions. And uh, I recognize that there are many more questions in queue, and uh, to some extent um, I, uh, I just want to kind of um, go over with all of you. I know there are many more questions in queue, so I want to just say a few words before we end today's program. Uh, first of all, if you, ha- if you asked a question, or if you had a question and didn't get to ask it, um, or you heard something on the program today? Um, I would take everything back, whatever you've learned. Take it back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best, and indeed, um, they, you know, they, they actually, um, you know, they, um, uh, you know, they, they will be able to have, you know, pre- to customize what you've learned to you, so that you, get, you take the information and your healthcare team, who knows you the best, will be able to customize it to you. Um, also, uh, Cancer Care does offer a whole range of services that you can contact us for, um, and um, the CLL Society, which is our partner organization today, specializes in CLL and just has a tremendous array of of resources for all of you to access, so we definitely want you to take advantage of them as well. And we do want you to know that although this is a challenging time for everyone during this COVID pandemic, nevertheless, um, we want you to know that although you may be physically distanced from people, um, your social connectedness is very much important. And so the ability to call an organization, to call a friend, um, to call out for help, email and organization is very important in terms of your own, you know, just your own really lessening your feelings of isolation and loneliness. So please do know that although you may at times, it's quite normal to feel a bit alone in normal circumstances, nowadays it's a little bit more heightened. And so just these resources are all the more important to all of you, including your healthcare team. We never want to sidestep their availability to you as well. I just want to thank all of you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for
0: your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.